So I don't want to delay. I just let's just dive right into Ephesians four. But I think it's proper uh, since we're diving right in, like kind of the toward the end. Allow me to kind of recap what Paul has been saying from chapter one on, kind of to get the logical flow of his argument. There is a philosopher named Antony uh, Flew. He was an atheist. He's a human scholar, uh, Hume, David Hume, scholar. And uh, he said when he read uh, um, Paul's works that he is a consummate logician. You know, he's a brilliant logician, you know. And I thought, yeah, most secular scholars don't read the scriptures. <laughs> well, I guess, suppose, why should they? But Paul is so bright. And so he has always a logic to his, to his arguments, um, which is marvelous. So let's walk through what Paul says and recap his thought process. So in Ephesians 1, he teaches us that you have, we have been predestined in Jesus before the universe was even created. Because God loved us while we were yet strangers and while we were Christ's enemy. Wow. Amazing, amazing. Then he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is our down payment of God's power in Christ. And in light of this, we are called to be people of people, people of hope, and people of power. Okay, that's chapter 1. Then Paul takes us through his next idea in chapter 2, and he says that our identity in Christ should supersede everything else which seeks to define us. Wow. Our identity in Christ should supersede everything else which seeks to define us. And then he continues to build in chapter 3, and he says the great mystery, what is this great mystery? God's eternal plan has now been revealed, and it is that Jesus Christ has created a new people for his Father by bringing Jews and Gentiles together in one unified body. A people who have direct, this is unbelievable, direct and equal access to the Father. Thank you, Jesus. And then we move on to where we are today in chapter 4. In chapter 4, kind of 4a, the first part, Paul brings us to, and teaches us about the unity of the body. And in chapter 4, 1 through 16, Paul tells us that unity is preserved through the practice of Christ-like virtues. And growth is the result of ministry from and among the body of Christ. And so that's kind of a, a baby um, overview of Ephesians 1 through 4a. And so now we're in 4B today, and I want to take as our subject and as our theme, I think Paul's main idea in this section from 4.17 to 5.5 is this, do not walk like the world, but walk worthy of the new life you have been given. Do not walk like the world, but walk worthy of the new life you have been given. Let us pray. Dad, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that you chose us from the foundation of the world to be your children. Lord, I thank you so much that you have given your son. You've given us the best thing you could give us. You've given us the best thing you had to offer. I can, you've, Lord, I thank you so much for giving us your best, Lord. And, and forgive me, forgive us for sometimes not giving you our best, Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, this sermon uh, uh, does honor to the truth and the things that you've done, Lord, and things that you've taught, and that it pricks our hearts to become more like you and to walk worthy of the new life we've been given. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son and Spirit, we pray. Amen. We should observe how Paul begins this section in verse 17. 
He says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. This, therefore, that Paul has there ties this passage not only to the immediately preceding section where Paul has just talked about unity and how to preserve unity, but this, therefore, is there from the rest of 1 through 4a that we just talked about. Therefore, given all of this stuff, given all of this stuff, you should not walk like the Gentiles. You should not walk like the Gentiles. In this section, Paul continues to lay a foundation for explaining how it is possible to change by affirming the importance of understanding the truth of our new identity. Do you know who you are? Remember Mufasa and Simba? You know, remember who you are. Remember that scene? That's what Paul's trying to get us to see here. Which, of course, necessitates a change in our conduct. Which necessitates a change in our conduct. But here is the sad truth that though we have been made new in Jesus Christ, many of us continue to, to, to walk like the world. But what does Paul mean by walking like the world, right? For Paul, we are walking like the world if the basis of our life, if the why of everything we do comes from anything other than living into the reality of our new identity. Wow, I'll say that again because this is so poignant, right? What does it mean to walk like the world? We walk like the world if the basis of our life is our money, our career, uh, uh, our children, I'm talking about the basis, the reason why you're living, the why, the telos. If it's anything other, if it's anything other than living into the reality of your new identity, it's not about actions or it's not about just your actions, it's also about your perception of reality. It cuts to the core. Do you perceive reality like the world? Though you have been made new and alive, some of us see the world no differently than the dead man. My Lord, have mercy. Though you can see, you close your eyes shut throughout reality. Though Jesus has given you sight through him. We must ask ourselves, how are our thoughts, our life choices, our plans, our moral judgments different from my colleagues at work, your colleagues at work, your neighbor, your friends who are, are, may not be Christian? How in the world do we differ in the way we live our life and conduct ourselves? Paul gives us insight into the mindset of the unbeliever. Okay, He tells us why the world lives the way that they do. He tells us why the world lives the way that they do. He says that their thoughts are meaningless, verse 17. That their minds are darkened, 18. They are ignorant. They have become callous in their thinking. Their hearts have become hard. They are oriented to self-indulgence. They are driven by greed and their minds are deceived. And as a result, they are cut off from God. Dare I say, as C.S. Lewis said, they're cutting themselves off from God. But what is our excuse, right? Why do we live like the world in some circumstances? Do we not have access to the one who can renew our minds? Do we not know the truth, the capital T, which is Jesus, right? 
And we are called to be set apart and sanctified. You know, you know that? And, 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 and I know it's hard to day to day to live this out because we don't feel special. You know, this is our culture is all about feeling things, everything. It's like, I don't feel special. I don't know what to tell you. You, you know, I, don't, I can't uh, fix that. I'm not a psychologist, perhaps. I don't know who fixes how you feel about certain things. But you need to live into the reality. Reality sometimes doesn't sync up with how you feel, right? Reality sometimes doesn't sync up with how you feel. And you can't change reality based on how you feel. And so here are the facts. Though we may not feel it all the time, and maybe you're even struggling with some difficulties in sin as a believer, the facts are this. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. That's big. That's a big statement. Right? Verse, verses 22 to 24, Paul reminds us of our duty as children of God. He says, you took off your former way of life and the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. And verse 23 there is kind of clunky. It's like, what does that mean? If you kind of take a moment to look at verse 23, what you'll recognize is that the Holy Spirit is the agent of renewal, not us. The Holy Spirit is the agent of the renewal. He's the one doing it. So to be renewed by the Holy Spirit in your minds is what Paul is getting at. And then verse 24, you put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. The old self, you know, we hear about it all the time. What is this old self that Paul is referring to? So we, we address what it means to walk like the world, right? Our telos is anything other than, than, than our identity and movement in the Lord. And so then what is this old self, right? It is more than just an old mindset or, an, or a lifestyle, right? Paul's just not trying to be cute here. What he's saying is, what, is Paul, what Paul was referring to, he's, he's saying that believers who must put away the old self, and this old self, this, this disgusting old self, is in terms of their solidarity of Adam. That's what the old self is. The one who is in solidarity with Adam. He was the representative of humanity in his disobedience, sinfulness, and rebellion against God. Now, conversely, right, Christ is now, he now represents the new humanity, the new creation, which is in Christ, right? In the book of Ephesians, as you're reading it, you see in him or in Christ. Those, that, that in him, that kind of phrasing occurs at least 32 times. The, book, the whole book of Ephesians may even be called in him, dot, dot, dot. All things were made. In him, you were chosen. In him, you've been made new. In him, in him, in him, you see. The old self refers to the former you, the once fallen and dead in their transgressions and sin, the vestiges, that I, that, uh, the vestiges of that identity that remains in all of us. These sinful traits need to be stripped off and their influence needs to be eradicated, defeated, held bound, destroyed. In, in mathematics, you know, the, the, these, uh, um, there's an abstract idea of distance, this thing called distance, you know, um, some, some kind of space where there's some distance of X and Y. And the goal of the analyst, right, is to take this X and this Y and to bring them closer together. That's the goal. 
you know, to bring them as close as you can, and, and the closer you can make it is good, you know, for whatever you're doing, less than some epsilon, if you will. And, and that's the analyst's job, you know. But as a Christian analyst, though in the mathematics the goal is to take X and Y and bring it as close as it can be together, as the Christian analyst, we must go the opposite direction. And so I pose to us this, this idea, this question, how different are you from your old self? As the Christian analyst, how much distance have you put between you and your former self? Have you increased it? Have you been striving to increase the distance from who you once were in solidarity with Adam to who you now are in solidarity, in solidarity with Christ? Paul calls us to rid ourselves of every corrupt practice that was a part of our former life. Therefore, the distance between our old self and new self should be constantly increasing. In essence, we are to be, uh, 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 we should be on an ongoing process. We should be living in repentance and growth. Otherwise, we live like the world and we gain no distance between who we once were and who we are. But the studious Christian may sense a bit of a contradiction here, right? How is it that Paul says, you have taken off your old self, and then he says, at the same time, you still need to take off your old self? Did you catch that bit of friction there? It has been achieved, but then you got to still do the thing that's been claimed to have been achieved, right? How do we resolve this problem? As Christians, it is my conviction that we do not believe in contradictions. Contradictions are always false, no matter who says them. Now, the Lord never made a con He's never taught any contradictions. I want to be clear on that. And those in the world who claim that the Trinity or the Incarnation are a contradiction, they're, they're, they don't fully understand the doctrine. We affirm no contradictions. Our God is a God of truth, and he is, he is the Logos, the ultimate one of all reason is based upon. So how do we resolve this? The solution uh, it lies in seeing the eschatological tension of the already and not yet. What am I talking about? I'm using a lot of big words. Well, let me explain what I mean. What I mean is that the key to interpreting these statements is understanding the proper relationship of what has already happened in Christ with what Christ is yet calling his people to do. A real change has already taken place by virtue of our incorporation into Christ and participation in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, okay? Yet until Christ returns, these will not be fully realized characteristics in the daily experience of believers. I hope this makes sense. Thus, there is no true contradiction when Paul says to the church at Colossae that you have uh, taken off your old self. And then he tells the church at Ephesus that they still need to take off the old self. Both are true. Both are true. The former statement affirms the new identity of believers in terms of their participation in the death of Christ, right? Whereas the former, or excuse me, the latter uh, teaches that believers need to align their day-to-day -day lives with the reality of who they are in Christ. The old self still lingers, as does the flesh. In spite of that fact, Paul says it too 
has been crucified. But how then, how do we become who we're called to be? How do we get rid of the old man, you know, and put on the new? How do we achieve this? It is only by renovating the soul. Only by renovating the soul. My wife loves watching those, uh, what is the HD, HGTV um, renovating thingies, you know? Uh, and, uh, and I sit there as, I think, a good husband and just let her just go through. And they're breaking down the wall. And she just enjoys watching them go through. I'm like, I want to see some explode, some, some action of some kind, you know? And, and they take this ruggedy old home, right, and renovate it. And that thing is beautiful. I mean, amazing. How do we become new people? And the Lord dropped it into my spirit when I was watching the HDTV home improvement. It's by renovating the soul. My Lord, have mercy. By the renovation of the soul. We must say to the Holy Spirit, I am open for renovation. Lord, make me new. Transform me. Take me as I am and, 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 and make me like your son. Mold me, Lord. Are you open for Holy Spirit renovation? Are you open to allowing God to do a work in you to help put distance between who you once were and who you are called to be? Listen, my brothers and sisters, I know that we live in a, in a time and a culture where everybody's good and, oh, it's okay, you're living your life the way you want to and you're not very bad and I'm, I'm so sorry uh, and, uh, and I know this is not the first time that you're hearing this, but there is extensive corruption in our hearts that needs to be rooted out. We are not good without God. We need Holy Spirit renovation. All of these rotten and corrupt tendencies, and you know what they are for yourself, cannot be erased overnight. I remember when I was, uh, 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 you know, hardcore Pentecostal, and you'd come down the aisle, and the preacher would pray for you, and you'll fall out, you know, and then all of your sins are made new. And I always thought, man, all the times I've fallen out, I still have these sins. How come they're not eradicated, you know, in a matter of a second or two? Now, the Lord can do it. But through my experience, and I think what the scriptures teaches, is that it is an ongoing process of Holy Spirit renovation as how you become a new person. These things must be progressively eradicated. Paul wants these old attitudes to be replaced by attributes that are characteristic of our new family identity. Our text provides two ways to put on the new self. Two ways. In verses 20 to 21, you might have seen when our brother was reading there that Paul uses this weird phrase, learning Christ. Learning Christ. So that is a, you learn content, right? You don't learn people. What does it mean, learning Christ? But here is what Paul means. Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. Being shaped by his teaching. What is the Lord teaching us? You can only be shaped by his teaching if you know what he's teaching. The only basis for change is to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a relationship that ends after 1130 on Sunday, right? But a relationship that is ongoing, that it lasts in the good times and the bad times and all the situations you find yourself in. Wherever you go, Jesus should be with you. 
Jesus should be with you. When people learn Christ, God makes them a new creation. And they become entirely new people at the core of their identity. This is not a message of how to be better by your own actions and will. This is a teaching on how the only way to obtain your new identity is by letting go of your efforts and falling into Jesus. Lord, take me. Holy Spirit, renew me. The second thing is that we need to renew our minds. The only way that our minds can be renewed is by availing ourselves to various means of engagement with the intent of building our relationship with Jesus. This is why it's important that you should go, if you're able to go and it works with your work schedule and family schedule, to the 6.30 a.m. prayer. This is why it's important to go to the, the readings, I believe that the, the readings in Thomas Aquinas or whatever the readings were, going to those meetings and, and going to whatever Bible studies your church has and going to a gospel-preaching church, not a, uh, a church that preaches that you're a good person, you're sweet, and everything's right, or things are going to be made perfect in the end, but a gospel-preaching church. Then, by indirect movement, your mind begins to change. Your mind begins to change. My brothers and sisters, change is not only possible as we're walking with Jesus, it's expected. We are expected to be growing. And as brothers and sisters, we should be each other's fruit inspectors. You know, how are you doing? How, are you, how, is, your, how is your life going? How are you fleshing out what it means to be a Christian in your family, in this world, among your friends, and among your brothers and sisters at Oaks Parish? We shouldn't conform because we are loved, Paul says. We shouldn't conform because we are forgiven. We shouldn't conform to the world because we have within us the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't conform to this world because we are guaranteed a future with the Father. We shouldn't conform to this world because we are joined together as one body. And that's so hard to understand because it's kind of like you have your, your, your real family, you know. Then you have your, your church family. But the body of Christ is just as real. It is a true, real family. And as a result, we gain the most significant virtue that Paul commends, and that is love. Love defined by the example of Christ is the epitome of all the virtues. It is not so much the word love as it is the example. What does it mean to love? And then you got all the millions of songs. No, show me what it means to love. The example of Christ is the epitome. And the willingness of Christ to give up his life and the willingness of Christ, excuse me, and the willingness of his father to give his son up is what it means to love. And so for those of us who want to grow in the Lord and who are believers and want to put as much distance as we can between who we once were and who we are to be. The way to do that is by learning Jesus and by renewing your mind, by availing yourself to the practices of the Christian tradition. But I, but I do offer a warning to my brothers and sisters for those of us who do not heed this message Paul tells us that there are dangerous spiritual implications to willingly continuing to practice sinful behavior and not cooperating with the Spirit and the process of our renewal. Paul warns that such a choice combined with our behavior, right, makes us susceptible to a greater degree of influence by the devil. He says in verse 26, 
he specifically points out anger. You know, if anger persists too long, it will make us vulnerable to an intensified attack by the enemy. But I believe that the same principle holds true, not just with anger, but in any other kind of vice that you're practicing, that you know you should be seeking the Lord for renewal and guidance. Now, what Paul is not saying is if you're continuing in, in habitual sin that you're going to need to be, that you're going to be demonized, you're going to have a demon. That's not what he's saying or anything like that. But he's trying to get us to understand the severity uh, uh, of the matter. We are at war against the enemy, you know. Uh, though it looks like we're just singing songs and coming to church and going to prayer, these are uh, places of training for war against the enemy, Right? of girding ourselves up against the kingdom of darkness by speaking truth, living truth, and loving those. Loving those who don't even agree with us, you know? Loving those who, who usually the world would say we need to get rid of. Or even sometimes our Christian tradition would say we need to get rid of. But love does not equal um, condoning everything, right? just want to make that clear. I want to make that clear. So what Paul is saying is that Satan will exploit a situation whenever he can to gain a stronger level of influence in a person's life in his efforts to re-enslave us, to re-enslave you into a life of sin. That is his goal. The reason that the distance between who you used to be and who you should be is so difficult is because the enemy is pulling you on the other side, saying, no, 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 no. Please, please don't change. Don't become patient and kind and loving and long-suffering. No, no, no. Please, please, please don't know the truth. Believe the lies of the culture. Because once you know the truth, oh, please, please don't see reality the way that Jesus sees it. I want you to be enslaved to your passions and enslaved to lies. That's the enemy's work. And Jesus says, I come to set you free. Can I get an amen? amen. Is that okay? Is that all right? So it is a tantamount to, to Satan standing ready with a, with, a, with a jug of gasoline waiting for us to slip up and fail. But Jesus says, not so. This is my brother and sister. The father says, not so. This is my son and daughter. And he thwarts the works of the enemy. And so we put to death our former self. In my closing, I'm reminded of my, my grandmother. Uh, she was a sweet old, you know, lady. And uh, she, uh, she's so funny. funny, funny so many funny stories, this, this my grandmother. And, uh, and there used to be this thing called testimony service of the churches I was growing up with. And it would be like an hour long, you know. <laughs> We'd be in church all day. And uh, testimony was service to go. And you're just, you're sitting in the pews and anyone can testify to what the Lord has been doing. Or sing a song. And my grandmother would oftentimes get up with her little self and her little cane, and she'd walk over to the mic on the front, and she'd sing this song. And I'm going to recite the lyrics, and it's, it's, the song goes, please search me, search me, Lord. Please search me, search me, Lord. Shine the light of heaven on my soul. And if you find anything that shouldn't be, take it out and strengthen me, because I want to live right. I want to be saved, and I want to be whole. That was her testimony. Please, Jesus, search me. Search me, Lord. Oh, Lord, search me. Search me, Lord. Shine the light of heaven on my soul. And if you find anything that shouldn't be, take it out and strengthen me. Because I want to live right. I want to be saved, Lord Jesus, and I want to be whole. My brothers and sisters, let us not live like the world. Let us 
put on Christ. Let us learn Jesus and let us get rid of who we used to be by falling more in love with the Savior and the one who can free us. Please search me. Search me, Lord. Let us pray. Dad, I thank you so much that you are in the business of renovation, that you are in the business of making us new. And when we fail, you are right there saying, oh, 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 don't condemn yourself. There is freedom. There is hope. There is love. There is forgiveness. You are a gracious God, Lord. And so as we're seeking to become more like your son, Lord, we're grateful for your grace that we don't have to fall into pity or anger or frustration, that we can't quite make it because, oh, my Lord Jesus, you are gracious. Holy Spirit, do a work in us. Make us new. Do a work in us, Lord, so that our, our spouses and children and friends and colleagues say something is different about you and say, oh, the Lord has been doing a work in me. Lord, we pray and we give you all the permission to do what you will with our souls. And we give you all the glory and honor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.